Ah, well, I've just poured myself a coffee, so I guess that means uh, we're officially uh, up and running. You know, a few years back, I used to actually run a... Uh, I say run, that makes it sound very grand. I had a vanity podcast, uh, aren't all podcasts vanity podcasts, but I had a little podcast called Morning Coffee. Uh, where I would uh, just kind of talk about whatever, whatever kind of went through my head. And um, I <laughs> I always started the episode by getting some, I don't really even call it, like kind of room tone, uh, some foley work of me pouring the coffee uh, into the mug, like up close and personal with the mic. And the idea was that like a podcast would generally last as long as it took me to drink two cups of coffee uh, from my pots. And... This is this is oddly uh, nostalgic because here we are. I'm I'm alone now in a in a room which is ostensibly my podcast studio, which makes it sound very grand, but it's really just um, a kind of padded box room in my house. Uh, I do have a nice microphone stand, and I've got the podcast machine mounted on the wall. I don't know if this is a sign of like a massive achievement or just a sign that uh, my life has gone horribly off the rails and I should be doing something better with it than sitting inside on a nice April day recording a podcast. But at the same time, I get to talk about one of my favourite subjects, which is uh, After I Think, a comic I've been working on for a decade now, and uh, I get to listen to one of my favourite things in the world, which is the sound of my own voice, because I'm an egomaniac. So, yeah, it could be worse. And it's raining outside, so... It could always be worse. Mm. Mm, big sip. Definitely could be worse. Well, um, I guess because I'm trying to be professional, I should say hello and welcome to the Afterlife Inc. podcast, a deep dive into a comic and a company you can believe in. My name's John and I'm a writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. and the co-founder of Big Punch Studios. This episode is made possible by your support at patreon.com forward slash Afterlife Inc. and by my incredible Kickstarter backers who help make the Afterlife Inc. 10th anniversary collection reality. Now, let's get started. Well, that was professional, wasn't it? I actually went to the effort of writing myself a little intro because I think, and you're going you're gonna to see evidence of this as we get into it, uh, left alone to my own devices with, with, with no editor and a, a microphone, I could probably talk for hours. So I've tried to give myself a bit of structure. I've tried to actually control the fun because otherwise this could be even more self-indulgent and meandering than it than it already is so hello everyone thank you for joining me and welcome to the first episode of what was a promised stretch goal for the afterlife inc 10th anniversary kickstarter which if you're listening to this there's a very good chance you were a backer of mm, just getting more coffee so i should say of course a massive Massive thank you for your support. Um, if you weren't a backer, hey, no worries. This podcast for everyone, so it's just it's just nice to have you on board. Um, I guess I'm sorry it's taken so long to get this out. Um, however, as it was like a, you know a nice a nice extra compared to uh, the actual book itself, which of course had to take priority. Um, hopefully, it's not the end of the world. But it's taken taken a few months to get it out into the world. Um, at the time of recording, I think the Kickstarter, the Afterlife Think Kickstarter is like 99.99% done. Like 
it's possible that some people listening are like, hey, I backed that and I never got a, I never got my rewards. Um, there are some of you out there. There's maybe like, I think, a handful of people who've never completed the survey. If you're listening to this and it suddenly jogs your memory and you're like, oh, heck, um, oh, heck, uh, <laughs> I never got my rewards. Um, please, please get in touch because obviously I want to make sure you you have them. That's my number one priority, really. There's no point in me in me just sitting on the books. I want to get them out into your hands. So if for whatever reason you're like, hey, where's where's I, I haven't I haven't received what I'm what I'm owed. Please get in touch. You know, I'd, I'd love to kind of sort, sort it out for you. Um, in terms of, you know, what else I've been up to since the Kickstarter ended, uh, life has been very, very busy of late, uh, but in a good way. Uh, the fulfillment of the Kickstarter kind of coincided with me quitting my day job. Um, not, I hasten to add, because the Kickstarter made me so kind of fabulously wealthy that I didn't have to worry about bills anymore. Because as well as the Kickstarter did, believe me, uh, that was like pure production costs and, and fulfillment. So, uh, so yeah, so no, um, but it coincided with me quitting my day job, finally taking the plunge and saying, you know what, I've had a very respectable job for, you know, 10 years, more than 10 years, actually. I've, uh, I've done everything right in principle. <laughs> uh, if I'm ever going to, you know, commit myself more fully to the comic side of things, I kind of need to take that leap because everything we've done, you know, over the course of the last decade with Afterlife Inc., with Big Punch, this has all been in the background of doing the day job, trying to have a normal life. Like so much of this, so much of my life up until this point has been crammed into uh, evenings, early mornings, weekends that um, I kind of, well, to be honest, I say I'd lost track of what having a normal life was like, but frankly, I'm not sure I ever really did have a normal life, um, or, or at the very least, I was living three three normal lives at once, mm. packed into the same amount of time. So, me going, me going fully freelance as a writer coincided with uh, a fulfilling the Kickstarter, which was good actually because it was so. Uh, it was so labour intensive that I think, particularly when we're getting the Book of Life and the Book of Death to to print, I ended up spending oh gosh, I think at least uh, at least five weeks of my life just almost working full time on prepping the files for print. It turned out to be slightly more complex than I'd initially anticipated. One of the reasons for that was that up until this point, I've always printed well, no, it's a lie. I have printed litho sometimes, but I'd mostly printed digital. And um, for those of you with a, a passing knowledge of, of, of how kind of print technology works, um, it's a digital printer. I mean, you can probably guess what that's like. Um, for these big hardbacks, I had to shift production to a, oddly enough, a uh, Lithuanian printer who came quite highly recommended uh, because the sheer scale of printing these two hardbacks, um, each of which weighs about two kilos, and the collective page count of both books is about 800. The collect, you know, just the, it was too much for our regular printers, like they would have had to outsource and, you know, it just would have been, it just would have been a nightmare. So I discovered um, this printer uh, in Lithuania through the world of um, RPG source books. Um, they've been doing some incredible work there. And, um, 
they were lovely to work with, very, very helpful, very, very helpful. But the difference, however, was that their machines were lithographic rather than digital, which I'm not an expert, but in the, in the simplest way of explaining it is like um, they're physically using ink. <laughs> so it's literally, there are four wells of ink, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. And one print head goes over, sprays all the cyan, one goes over, sprays all the magenta, so on and so on, until it mixes all the color. Um, and he said punching the table, that's not good audio. Um, and the issue was that because this artwork had been gathered over 10 years from so many different artists, even though it had been printed before, the various color profiles were all kind of, well, they, they, they were all slightly different. And that's not normally a problem if you're digitally printing because they can be kind of normalized. But in litho, this is where your digital dreams meet physical reality. It actually became quite a challenge because in some cases there was literally too much ink on the page. By which I mean, uh, if an artist is trying to uh, make a scene dark, what do you do? Do you paint in pure black? You know, do you mix a load of colors together to make a darker hue? A lot of artists, particularly if they're working digitally, will be working in RGB, which is a completely different, different color profile. And um, obviously we've been dealing with this for like 10 years, but never to this extent, never to this kind of much of a, of a headache, because um, yeah, if you, if you think that there are four conceivable colors that can go, that can be sprayed onto a piece of paper, to, to make any color under the sun. Um, yeah, they are cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. And the amount of each that goes onto the page can be measured from zero <laughs> to 100. So is it 100% black? Is it 0% black? 100% cyan, 0% cyan. And I think the issue is basically that whatever your mix of the four colors, if it exceeds 300%, so you know, you, you could do the math, but uh, yeah, if it exceeds 300%, it will literally be making the page too wet. The paper will be physically too wet. It might tear, it might bleed through, it might ruin the artwork on the other side. So basically I spent about five, five days, uh, five weeks of my life um, correcting, uh, you know, correcting color profiles. And, um, and in some cases, um, going back to original artworks such as we had it and making edits where I could and this wouldn't have been so challenging if it had only been a case of processing artwork from like two years ago, five years ago, but particularly going back to the early stuff, um, you know, particularly the stuff that was externally lettered and we didn't have the lettering files, I don't have the original artwork. All I have are, you know, like flattened pages and if if we're now going like, oh, the the text in the speech bubble is in the wrong, <laughs> it's the wrong kind of black. So that's a thing in itself, like CMYK black, pure black, rich black. These are all printing terms that I was I was aware of, but I'd never I'd never had cause to become so kind of intimately concerned with until it came to printing these books. And the perfectionist in me was like, okay, we need to get this right because as much as I you know, was kind of begging the printers to give me an out. I was like, oh, come on, it, will it really be so bad? Like, you're flagging these issues, but will it be fine? You know, won't it be fine, really? We've never had issues before. 
and the printers were like, you know, look, man, we, we know our machines and we're telling you this will be a problem. Like, if you want to print and you want to kind of like, I don't know, potentially ruin your artwork, that's your, that's your business, but we don't want you then coming to like sue us when it's bad because this is a big order. It was a lot of money. And, you know, with so much riding on it, you want to kind of make it, make sure it's right. So yeah, so that was a big part of my life for a long time and uh, longer than I expected. I think we kind of like lost a month from the original production schedule because I hadn't anticipated those problems. But uh, thankfully we got around it and the books started uh, kind of going out in like December, January. Had a few problems with the American fulfillment, which I won't go into here because we, we were using the Amazon fulfillment system and they are just an absolute nightmare. Like we use them for our, our, our card game sandwich maskers. We use we use them for getting that out into the world and heaven forbid, heaven forbid, if anyone out there is selling on Amazon or has ever thought about selling on Amazon, heaven forbid that you create an original product. Like an original product that no one else in the world sells because Amazon is more geared. Like if I want to go on tomorrow and start selling like a very popular leading brand of Tosca, uh, easiest thing in the world by comparison. Creating a new item, if you've created, say, a coin, which has never existed before in the world, if you created a hardback that's never existed before in the world, oh, it's a, it's a world of trouble. So it was a very stressful kind of and busy six months, but um, come January, everything had pretty much reached people, aside from, you know, uh, those few people who hadn't received, um, who still haven't, I believe, received their, 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 their rewards because they haven't filled in the survey. Again, to reiterate, I would very much like to get stuff out into your hands. Um, so yeah, there's those people. I think a couple of people said that their book turned up damaged. If you're one of those people and you're listening and I haven't given you a re replacement by now, please, 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 please get in touch because I know at least one person was like, my book's been damaged and I, I want it replaced. And I was like, absolutely, I'll email you. And I did, and I've never had a response about getting that sorted. So if you think you're that person, please get in touch. Because believe me, <laughs> I want to get these books out to you. So yeah, so um, with that in mind and the fulfillment that's been going on, um, I also had some very cool news recently, which is um, a video game I wrote has just had its official announcement. So some of you may have seen it on uh, Twitter or, or some of my various kind of platforms, but um, one of the main factors in me quitting my job was that I uh, was commissioned to write the plot, dialogue, and cutscenes, basically the whole shebang, for um, a video game based on the Toxic Crusaders, uh, which is a story for another day. I won't go into too much detail, but um, it was a very, uh, it was a very silly, environmentally themed. Uh, lots of ooze, lots of mutants. Very early '90s cartoon. A kid-friendly adaptation of the Toxic Aven Avenger. Why did I say it like that? The Toxic Avenger uh, kind of comedy horror movies from the 80s turned into a kid-friendly 90s cartoon, which now, like 32 years later, is being turned into a beat-em-up game. So, like I said, I wrote the whole plot. Uh, it just had its big uh, release uh, announcement at PAX. It's going to be coming out later this year. Um... I've been privy to see a lot of like the behind the scenes development. I'm in I'm in the group with all the team working on that, and they're just putting out the most incredible work, like every every day. It's it's astonishing. I mean, obviously, I have a vested interest in it, but I really do think it's shaping up to be something wonderful. Mm. 
And we've had such an amazing response to that. It's been really gratifying because um, a big, a, a, a kind of fundamental part of kind of making comics the way I've been doing it or working with anything creative for like a decade is that it, 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 you don't always get the, the instant reward. You know, it's about, it's about delayed gratification because, um, you know, particularly when you're independently publishing stuff, you know, if, like, if you have an idea for a story, you know, you, you know, there's this brief window where it's very fun and exciting. And then you're like, okay, I'm scaring down the barrel of at least 12 months of intense work on this now. Like, I, I will not see a physical product for a long, long time. So, and, and you know, also when you're working on a, a very, very long form story, which has spanned multiple volumes, like, I don't know, Afterlife Inc., there's also the idea that, like, as much as every individual volume is fun, I am not going to get to the end of this story for, like, at least 15 years. And that is, like, a mad, just a mad and audacious thing to do with your life. And um, But here we are. Here we are. Mm. So compared to that, it's been a relatively quick turnaround uh, in getting the game made. I think we've been working on it for about 12, 12 months, give or take. And... Uh, by comparison, that is relatively quick, which is the power of having a publisher. And I have to say, the publishers Retroware have been absolutely amazing. Um, they really rolled out the red carpet for the game, Axa and Pax, and it's just very, very, very exciting. Mm. And, and uh, one final piece of like current news, and then I will shut up and get on topic, is um, I recently launched a new um, a new Kickstarter, which is running. It's, it's, it's a week in at the time of recording. And compared to the Afterlife Inc. Kickstarter, which was an absolute monster, this one is intentionally very small, much, much, much more manageable. Uh, we're only asking for a few hundred quid, and I, I think right this morning we've crossed the 400% funded, which is kind of, kind of insane. Uh, it's for Comic Writers Journal. It's a customizable journal designed to help people uh, who want to write comics uh, get the best out of their stories. Um, you still have to write the script, so that's on you. But this book will help you, this notebook will help you kind of plan out your story in meticulous detail so that you never run into any surprises. And it's a method I've been using for years, and I and I, I very much hope uh I hope it will be of use to people. And, and and so far, like I said, we've got three weeks to go, but so far the response has been absolutely incredible. So, yeah, I, I kind of held off on launching that until I was absolutely certain that the vast, vast, vast majority of the Afterlife Inc. Kickstarter was sorted, which, of course, we are now at. We're at that point. So, yeah, this, by contrast, is is much more simple. You know, everything about it. It's, uh, it's not like... Um, four kilos of hardback it's like a very simple black and white journal and it's not being printed in lithuania it's being printed around the corner i can go physically collect it it's a dream by comparison <laughs> but hey so uh now that we're here and we're talking about um after i think um i guess it's time to get the really self-indulgent stuff underway and to dive into this behind the scenes podcast and the way it's working is i'm going to do an episode per uh, per volume. So I'm going to do an episode per original book in the series. We're also going to include The Heavenly Chord. And, um, you know, if you're reading along at home, if you want to kind of grab uh, grab your, uh, your Afterlife Inc. library, 
this episode, we're going to be talking about Volume 1, Dying to Tell, and its origins and stories and how it came to be, and where I was at that time in my life when I was working on it. And um, it doesn't really matter uh, whether you are at home reading uh, an original copy, so you've got the original soft cover in front of you, or if um, you're using the Book of Life. I think, I think both versions are, are applicable. And um, we'll also find a way to talk about some of the uh, special features which are in the Book of Life as well. So you'll kind of get the full, the full package. So uh, just before we dive into uh, kind of Dying to Tell, I thought I'd just start by giving you like a potted history of me as a, as a creator, as a fan of comics, how I got into this space and, um, and kind of like how... I arrived at, at, at Afterlife Inc., how that even came to be, because it's a story which has kind of changed my life. And it's certainly not a story I imagined I would spend, you know, a decade, pretty much my entire adult life, if you consider that that only begins once you finally leave education, maybe. That's one school of thought. Um, my entire adult life has been dominated by Afterlife Inc. So, yeah, how did that come to be? Hmm. Well, I got my start in comics at quite quite an early age. Um, I grew up in the UK, as I think should be evident from, from my voice and location and just everything I, I share about my life. Um, and comics were very kind of rare and special things growing up. Uh, I, I grew up in the kind of late 80s, early 90s. 90s was really when I started kind of consuming, consuming things avidly. And... Um, you know, for people of my age, which is becoming increasingly um, uh, seasoned, uh, you know, American comics were quite hard to come by. Like superheroes were more commonly seen in a in a cartoon, in a Saturday morning cartoon, than they were on on comic shelves. Uh, comic shops were kind of few and far between. They were like these mysterious little kind of treasure troves where you'd get a window into not just kind of superhero culture but I guess kind of like American culture like the two things were kind of like um completely inseparable inseparably tang I can't speak today were completely entwined with one another like Spider-Man was American like America was 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 superheroes like these things were one and the same like New York was a fictional place and and a, and a real place and it, it was kind of amazing like everything just seemed kind of like brighter more exciting in comics um and of course, at that point in my life, everything was superheroes. Like, um, you know, manga and the like was practically unheard of at that time. Um, it was out there, but it was very, very, very niche, very hard to come by. And so, uh, oh, and the same for anything that wasn't superhero related. I guess like slice of life comics, anything in a different genre. Uh, you know, the stuff that we did have access to was very dominated by superheroes. But as a kid growing up in, in, in the UK, you'd get these um, weird other little windows into comics. So we had certain kind of um, UK-based publishers which had acquired licenses to more popular characters. So there was a, um, there was a Spider-Man comic in the UK, but it was, um, it was original content and some reprints, I want to say. Mostly original content drawn by British artists um, but very short stories, not 22 pages, very like, it might be like an eight page comic, a couple of eight page comics tied together in a more of like a magazine format. 
like very bit more kiddie, bit more kind of simply produced uh, on cheaper paper, that sort of thing. But you know, that's how I would consume Spider-Man, and I, I think they were more their, their their origin was was more kind of because of um, because of the cartoons. You know, the Spider-Man cartoon was very popular in the UK, and so it wasn't like a direct port of the comics. It was you know, how can a UK publisher cash in on the on the on the cartoon basically. We also had like kid kiddie cartoons, like uh, comics like a Thomas the Tank Engine. Uh, you, you get these like very old like British establishment comics like the Dandy, the Beano, which are quite kind of hard to describe to somebody who didn't really grow up with them. But they were, I guess, if you're American, maybe closer to like Archie comics, like um, very kind of like gag gag comics, like sometimes. If you if you got a copy of the Beano, it would have like thirty different strips in it. It came out like fortnightly. They were, you know, one individual comic would only be like I don't know, like a page, maybe two pages at most. And they they had their origins in like um, kind of like the post-war period, and they they some of them are still going today. So that was kind of like the landscape of comics, and in 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 the UK in the nineties, and while we had things like two thousand AD and um, some of the Marvel UK comics. So Marvel did have a division in the UK. Um, they just, I, I, my my paths just didn't align with them. Like I was too young or they were just too hard to come by. I'm gonna pour myself another coffee. There we go, that's Foley work. Foley work right there. So 2008 completely passed me by. But one comic that really, really kind of lit a fire under me was um, uh, Sonic the Comic, which was a uh, a UK licensed Sonic the Hedgehog comic. Um, I say completely in its own continuity, uh, but then at, at the time, like in '92 or whatever, like Sonic didn't really have a continuity. He was just a you know a fun little video game platformer, but you know, jumped on jumped on robots and collected rings. And Sega just kind of, you know, handed the reins to a, a UK publisher called Fleetway. And um, yeah, and and uh, I can't really uh, under undersell this, but what started as like a very kid friendly, very kind of like loose adaptation of the video game plots, such as they were very quickly went into weird new territory when they were producing comics faster than the games. So they had to start developing their own continuity. And uh, the creative team, and the kind of like, there, there were various like superstar names that I think all the kids who were into it growing up came to know off by heart. But there was Richard Elson, who was the, the lead illustrator, who was like... A, all my friends, he was like our hero. Like he was just incredible. Like he, his artwork was and still is astonishing. And I've had the honor of working with Rich in later years, which which really was kind of like the culmination of several childhood ambitions. And he's such a lovely guy. And he did um he did an illustration for book four of Apple, I think. And he's worked for Marvel and he's worked for two thousand AD and he's just he was so much better than my book and he was so kind in in offering his services like it's just somebody who has really embraced and the, the community that loved his work so much on this weird little comic <laughs> this weird little UK Sonic the Hedgehog comic um, 
And the reason I'm talking about it so much is that growing up, uh, my friends and I, we made a... Well, we made a comic in primary school. We made a comic. We must have been like eight years old, something like that. Seven, eight, nine, ten even, God. And, and we made four issues, eventually, of our own characters, which were effectively just complete rip-offs of... Um, complete rip-offs of characters from Sonic the Comic. Um, you know, if, if anyone's ever seen Sonic the Hedgehog or has any kind of cultural awareness of Sonic the Hedgehog, if you've ever tried drawing Sonic the Hedgehog, I think you'll appreciate that there are certain basic rules as to how you draw a cartoon hedgehog in the style of Sonic. And if you are willing to swap out the fur colour, the, the kind of shape of the spikes, it's very easy to create a quote-unquote original character based on that mould. And um, to me and you know a few friends, we, we were making this comic that we called um, Big Punch for some reason. I don't know why. But, but again, clearly a name that stuck with me because years later that would become the name of my company, Big Punch Studios, which is now the umbrella under which are kind of all the cool stuff I make and the stuff that Nick, Ali and Lucy make with me gets kind of published. So yeah, the shadow of Big Punch looms large. And interestingly, like, um, as much as, um, you know, as kids, we kind of gravitated to the artists on Sonic the Comics. So we had Richard Elson, we had Nigel Dobbin, who, who very sadly passed away recently. Um, you know, he was, he was, he was a, one, of our, one of our childhood heroes. And um, the, as much as we gravitate to the, art, to the artists, because I, I think that's what kids naturally do, you're drawn to a very visual thing like comics. Um, I was not an especially good artist growing up, and I, I think among our our like, little friendship group, I was undoubtedly the worst. And I love I love doing it. I drew all the time, but like I wasn't very good. I didn't I didn't I didn't have that that particular eye for it. And so at those early days, I, that's kind of when I discovered that comics had writers as well. So I. Uh, I started to read the credits on these on these issues, and I discovered that there was a guy called Nigel Kitchen, who was writing all these comics, and that was kind of like a revelation for me. Like I realised that oh my god, like you can you can actually write comics as well. Like you don't necessarily need to need to be an artist. And so when we made those early comics, those really kind of hand drawn, uh, not even stapled together, just held together in like a kind of like one of those, um, oh, um, vinyl plastic wallet kind of binder kind of things. Uh, I I became the writer. I would write scripts, and uh, my my friends would kind of bring them to life. And it was kind of oddly, you know, pro prophetic. Prophetic. I can't speak. What's wrong with me? It was oddly. I don't know. It, it kind of it, it locked me into a mold that kind of ended up shaping the rest of my life because I realised I really really liked writing and the cool thing about a comic and you know realizing saying it out loud now was that if you had a team assembled then if you wrote something it kind of came to life it became a comic so even at an early age i was learning how to exploit artists by getting them to work for free age eight i all i just had to i just had to write a script and it magically turned into into artwork and as i kind of you know kind of grew up and we ostensibly grew out of making these silly little comics. Um, 
I I never really let go of it. I think um, you know, even to the point where we probably I probably should have have let go of it. I didn't. I guess it's that kind of like failure to launch or you know delayed delayed childhood. But I I just love these characters, and particularly as I went through. Well, actually, I love characters of all sorts. I was forever, you know, dreaming. Really, I guess mostly to kind of like escape the the dreariness of just going to secondary school in uh, I don't know in the nineties in Britain. Like everything, everything just seemed quite grey <laughs> and concretey. Uh, and I don't know. I was always coming up with like wild, colourful characters and stories, and I had no idea how to how to make them real. And I guess at the time, that didn't really matter because they just existed in my in my head, I, I you know, I, I, I would tell weird little fantasy stories, sci-fi stories, superheroes. You know, I love, you know, I, I had my own superheroes. I had a massive cask of superheroes. Mm. And I would, you know, I, 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 I have these rich narratives, like these great big kind of sagas that would just play out behind my eyelids. Um, and it was a wonderful little bit of escapism. And I always knew that I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to kind of do that with my life. But it's, it's you know, a tale as old as time. I had really no idea how to go about doing that. Like, what are what are the career pathways for, I don't know, working for Marvel, which just seemed like the only way that comics got made. Um, and 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 I, when I drew, and I did draw for pleasure, you know, images which you know never saw the light of day. I would draw my characters. And, you know, for a long time, um, because it was all I knew how to drew, a lot, a draw, a lot of them would still be uh, hedgehog adjacent, shall we say. They would still be kind of <laughs> uh, palette swapped uh, hedgehogs. Were they hedgehogs or were they porcupines? I don't know. They still look like hedgehogs. They still had the eyes and, uh, and that weird little nose that, that Sonic has. And, you know... The stories were getting bigger, but they were still saddled to this kind of weird, fan arty way of developing a character. Oddly enough, and I, I always remember, um, you know, I had my, I had my, I had my superheroes in my head. You know, I had um, this weird little sci-fi fantasy epic, uh, and uh, which I'm still, I'm still oddly proud of. I still plan to do something with one day. But of course, it was hobbled, if you will, by the idea that. A lot of these characters were, for lack of a better word, Sonic the Hedgehog ripoffs. And I always remember, and I owe him a lot of, I'm very grateful to him for this, but my friend Sam, who, uh, ironically enough, is the lead developer now on Toxic Crusaders. So it's pure nepotism, people. Um, as, to why, as to why I got that job. Um, but my friend Sam, I always remember him saying, like, your stories are really good. Why don't you just draw people? Rather than, rather than like hedgehogs or porcupines. And it sounds daft, but that was a bit of a revelation. I was like, you know what? He's onto something there because this story, I, I think it's all right, but nobody's going to read it if it's like a weird Sonic the Hedgehog ripoff. So I kind of, I kind of took the leap and I started designing, I don't know why I, I, I went this way, but I started designing my, a, a new team of superheroes. So this is how I, I entertain myself. And I would draw and tell these stories in my head and kind of plot out these big storylines about a team of superheroes. And because I was, because I was a teenager, uh, it became very teenage. So the 90s were an interesting time for comics. And 
uh, the 90s were kind of the teenage years of comics, if that makes sense. And things became very edgy. They became very gnarly, extreme, if you will. Extreme was the order of the day. And uh, if everyone, if anyone's familiar with comics, in, like Western American comics in the 90s, and I don't know, the work of like, I don't know, Todd McFarlane or Rob Liefeld, Liefeld or Jim Lee or everything, like the, the whole image crew, like it became very kind of like style over substance and superheroes weren't just guys in tights kind of fighting a good fight. They were edgy, they killed, they carried guns, they had spikes on their costumes. Everything was dark, everything was moody or, or horrific or, you know, demons. Everyone was fighting demons in the 90s and that's what my story became. So I, I started telling a new superhero epic in my head called um, Dark Force. I'll say it again for those who want to commit it to print. Uh, Dark Force, which was my which was my kind of magnus, magnus, magnum opus, magnum opus, learn how to speak. And in my head, it was like, it was the greatest thing ever. It was like this massive saga, heroes, morally conflicted heroes at that, uh, dark villains, yeah, epic battles between good and evil, and only it was all a bit murky, and who was really good and who was really evil. And you realise looking back on it that it's basically, it's, it's just... Teenage years, condensed. Like, this is, it's a very teenage way of kind of interpreting the world. Like, you know, it's, oh, the existing power structures you think you know, oh, are they as good as they, they seem to be? And like, and like, and I see this now, um, it's so funny that this is where the mind of so many young creators go there and go, go to this place. And I, I say it not to be critical because I was there, I've done it, but You'd be amazed at how many comics out there are about angels and demons. Like, so many. Uh, the war between angels and demons. Like, a team of superheroes empowered by angels. Uh, a team of villains empowered by demons. Or what I thought was a bold subversion, which was that the good guys were called Dark Force. And, you know, they, 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 their powers were dark and shady and they, they battled from the shadows. And I still, I still, like, you know, oddly enough, like those characters. Like, I, they stuck with me for years. Like, um, throughout... University even, I was still toying with these characters and, and doodling them and thinking that this was going to be my break into comics. This was, Dark Force was going to be my my gateway. And when I, I I'm just going to put it out there, I think there were some fun character designs there. I'm not, I, I might return to those characters at one point, in like a postmodern Alan Moore kind of way, but like, I, there were some fun stuff there. It was very 90s in a way, but I think there was a germ of something that might be worth salvaging one day. In fact, uh, a couple of those characters have been kind of salvaged. If folks, if any fans of Big Punch out there read Extraversal, our kind of anthology comic, um, there's some stuff in there which which ties back to Dark Force. Uh, of course, you, you and the reader would, wouldn't know what the hell was going on, but it's part of my particular mythology which is gone but not forgotten. It's still lurking in the shadows of the Big Punch multiverse. But as I went through university and I, I, I was studying the sciences, I was doing, you know, I was, I was going quite like a quote-unquote respectable degree in biological sciences, which I, I very much enjoyed. Um, I also realised that, like, as much as I enjoyed the sciences, it wasn't, it wasn't kind of getting me closer to, you know, kind of the... The, the thing I really wanted to do with my life, which was 
to kind of tell stories. And after graduating, I I did a very mature thing, which was I ran away. I ran away to to Canada for a year. I got a um, a kind of open work permit, if you will, which allowed me to go to Canada for twelve months and um, you know find work and experience life and everything. Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying the show. If you don't have a drink to hand, may I suggest grabbing one and rehydrating while I tell you why you should join the Afterlife community on Patreon. For just £2 a month, you'll receive digital copies of the entire Afterlife back catalogue, including the Heavenly Chord and the infamous Lost Issue, a true piece of Afterlife history. You'll also gain access to exclusive Patreon content, including podcasts and sneak peeks of the upcoming role-playing game, as well as the exclusive Afterlife Inc. Discord server. This is a great way to support a comic you can believe in in return for a host of amazing rewards. And don't worry if you can't afford to pledge, simply sharing your love for Afterlife Inc. on social media can make all the difference. Thanks for your time, folks. Now, back to the show. Around this time, I'd connected with a, an artist called um, uh, Keith Einman. And he was a uh, he was a odd enough a Canadian artist, and we'd connected I think on like a very old website now called Digital Webbing, which used to be a kind of like a place where you could post classified ads for comic creators like uh, uh, like a writer seeking artist, artist seeking writer, that sort of thing. You could kind of put like a team together that way, and I think that's how we connected. And uh, and then we used to chat on MSN Messenger. Which is really just like the most dated thing in the world now. But like, um, you know, Keith wasn't the sole reason for me wanting to go to Canada. Canada just seemed like a really cool place. But the fact that he was Canadian and wouldn't be too far away meant that we could kind of meet up. So I kind of upended everything and went over to Canada with with my friend my friend Titch, who was also kind of doing the sensible thing and running away, and. I was like, this is going to be my year. I'm going to kind of like, I'm going to get kind of like test the lay of the land. I'm going to kind of learn things. I'm going to meet comic creators. I'm going to try and grow as a, as a creator and really work out what I want to do with myself. And um, Keith had been helping me with Dark Force. We'd been, he'd been doing some kind of amazing character sketches, like really, really cool, uh, uh, bringing my characters to life. And I was still going, I was still banging the drum of going like Dark Force. This is the one. Dark Force, Dark Force, Dark Force. This is going to be it. And um, I remember, like, in the opening weeks of arriving in Toronto, which is where I lived initially, um, there was, like, a, a comic arts fair going on. Now, this was, like, 2007, I want to say. So my memory is hazy. I have no idea if this was actually TCAF, which I know is quite, like, a famous art-based comic convention now. Or whether it was some kind of like micro fair that was going on. But I remember going to this event and listening to people talk and creators, you know, kind of talk about their work and stuff. And I started to get this feeling that like, I'm floundering here. Like, I, I don't know what to do with Darks. I was still convinced that Dark Force was going to be going to be my ticket into the industry. And I was going like, I have no, like, where do I go with this? Where do I start? This seems like a lot. And um, I met a... Um, I met a, a creator there who was kind of like, you know, kind of big in the... He was working for, you know, Marvel and DC, doing cool stuff there. And he, uh, he, him and a few other artists and writers were sharing a studio 
in like downtown Toronto. And he very kindly allowed Keith and I to come and visit. And we kind of saw the studio in action, had a look around. Uh, you know, we went and got lunch, went to a comic shop. It was a really nice little kind of thing. And I remember, you know, you basically saying like, you know, what's your comic about? What's your kind of plan? And I, I, I tried like rattling off like what Dark Soul, Dark Souls, what Dark Force was about. And I think even I realised that like, I don't know what it's about. Like, it's about everything and nothing. It's about me just kind of coming out, like coming to the end of my teenage years, trying to make sense of the world. Like, it's not... You know, like, it's not a story to hang hang your hat on. Like, it's it's very hard to sell it. It meant everything to me, but it was a confusing mess to anyone else. And I remember trying to explain it to this guy and and saying, like, you know, oh, my plan was to do, like, a kind of 50-issue arc or whatever. And I remember him very, very wisely saying that, like, like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. That is... That's ridiculous. And, I, and he was so right, because if you think about it, like, how many... How many series that you've followed and loved, like modern series, how many of them got 50 issues? Like, I was trying to tell, I was trying to make like Sandman, I was trying to make like um, all these kind of big uh, multi-book series that I'd loved, like all the stuff from like the late 80s, the early 90s, the Vertigo books, everything Grant Morrison kind of, you know, put their hands to, like I loved. And I'd arrived at those things a bit too late. And... You know, and also the industry had changed. Things had moved on. And, you know, it, it's so stupidly ambitious to try and do those things when you're reliant on, you know, the kind of classic American comics publishing model, which was struggling at the time. Like, remember, this was kind of just prior to Iron Man coming out. Like, we we hadn't had the kind of Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, you know, and, and, you know, even today, like... Marvel, DC, they don't really make money on their monthly comics. They're just kind of loss leaders to seed ideas for for more movies or kind of like trade paperbacks. So it was just stupid. And, and the biggest problem was I just couldn't do an elevator pitch for Dark Force because, yeah, like I said, it meant everything and nothing. And, uh, and you know, so what, what the hell, how do I kind of explain this to people? So it was both like kind of encouraging and you know, disheartening at the same time, because I was like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know. I, I'm saddled to an idea that I think I think is going nowhere. And I always remember, um, I think, I think it, it was either at that little comics festival or it was when I popped into a famous comic shop called The Beguiling, a famous Toronto comic shop called The Beguiling a little later. And I was talking to some of the staff there. They may, I think they may have also been helping to run the festival. And I always remember this because it was one of those kind of light bulb moments where I think I was talking to the manager and I was trying to explain what my comic was about, what my plans were, what I was going to do with it. And it was always like, I'm going to do this. I'm planning on doing this. Then it's going to be this. It was always like, it was always the next thing that hadn't happened yet. I had always plans and I wasn't doing anything with it. And I always remember he said, he was like, he kind of said, I'm going to stop you there. And, and this is one of those, like, if it was a movie, you know, uh, you know, the, the camera would rack focus in on this guy. And he said to me, staring straight at me, there is nothing more overrated than a good idea. And it was like, a, it was like a slap in the face. It was like a slap in the face because 
he just poured cold water over all my ideas because they were ideas. It was just nothing but like, oh, I thought they were brilliant ideas. I thought they were incredible. This, this comic was going to change the world. But like, yeah, it was a lot of talk. <laughs> I wasn't doing anything with it. It was a lot of kind of just, I don't know, a lot of promises that weren't going anywhere. And it was exactly what I needed to hear. Like, I felt very low in that moment. But like, I really needed that. That's kind of like the best advice I've ever received. Like, it, it kind of turned my life around. So I kind of decided, like, in that moment that I needed a fresh, a fresh start. Like, I needed a new idea. I needed something that was completely unburdened by the baggage of what Dark Force had become. All the things I thought it, was need it needed to be. So I remember, like, I was living in this kind of big house share in Toronto. I think there was, like, nine of us hiding in the building. It was very ramshackle, you know, bare concrete floors, really kind of messy. But we had fun. Our, our landlady was a nightmare. But, like, we had, we had fun. It was a cool place to be. And I remember tossing ideas around in my head, like, trying to come up with ideas for what this story could be. And I had this idea about a con artist who would like arrive in the afterlife or something like that or maybe like I don't know like it very I want to say that the idea of a con artist running the afterlife very quickly was was one of like the earliest like kind of like light bulb ideas that appeared and I just remember that time being like it was like it was such a, a time of like wild creativity. It felt very liberating. I, I hadn't realized how much like Dark Force was holding me back because now I had this kind of original, very, for lack of a better word, pitchable idea. Like it was an idea that you could very easily condense into like a sentence. You know, it's like a con artist dies, discovers an afterlife in chaos, and decides to take over and run it like a business. I think one of the inspirations was I'd been reading um uh, a Terry Pratchett Discworld book. I think it was, um, I think it was going, I think it was going postal, or it might have been making money. But there are two books where the protagonist is a con artist called Moist von Lip Lipwig. Lipwig, I think his name was, and he is a, a con artist who is sentenced to is sentenced to be to be killed, sentenced to be hanged, and um, he's given a re reprieve at the moment of death. Um, uh, by the, the, the patrician, the, the kind of uh, ruler of the city, he basically says, I will, won't kill you, but instead we're going to put your services to you, we're going to put your skills to use, and I want you to fix the, first it's the postal system, and secondly it's the banking system. And in taking over the post office, I think it's the post office, I can't remember, um, he gets a unique suit, which is like, I think it's the uniform. I, I can't remember the exact details, but he gets a golden suit. So right off the bat, you can see the kind of DNA, the connective DNA, the tissue linking going postal to after, I think, because it's about a charming, charismatic con artist who's also faking everything and hanging on by kind of the skin of his teeth, who wears a distinctive suit, who has to fix a crumbling institution using nothing but, like, his wits and, you know, clever words. And, yeah, and, and I think that's where, like, that was where Afterlife Inc. came from. And I was like, okay, it'll be called something like Afterlife Inc., but I'll probably give it, like, a better name. 
And then I kind of cast around and it was the early days of the internet, but like I couldn't find like anything else in the world called Afterlife Inc. And I was like, well, okay, I guess I'll just call it Afterlife Inc. And I'll call the protagonist something like, oh, it'll be called like Jack Fortune, but something better than Jack Fortune, maybe like Jack Kismet, Jack. And I Googled and I looked around and I was like, no, Jack Fortune's really good. And I, I kind of was convinced that, oh, there must be, that this must exist. Like I, I must have taken this idea from somewhere. And um, it didn't seem to be in it, to be out there. And I, I just remember right out the gate, I had this idea that like, he's going to have a really long tie. Like he's going to have an incredibly long tie and it's going to be floating through the air like of its own accord. I was, and I was like, somebody's done this. I'm, I'm stealing this idea from someone, surely. Like, this is such a good idea. I couldn't believe it was more common. But I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find anything. I, I couldn't seem to find, you know, I couldn't seem to find that anything that suggested this wasn't an original idea. And so, yeah, like, Jack Fortune was there, like, right out the gate. And I remember, and perhaps when, you know, we go through the special features in the Book of Life, you'll see some of these because I included them. But I remember, like... I was kind of living out of a rucksack. I didn't have much stuff with me. And a lot of like those early kind of sketches, those ideas of after I think, it's like they were drawn on the back of like an envelope in a red crayon I found lying around. Um, they were, uh, I remember going to like a, a dollar store and I've still got them to this day, buying like two absolute, just kind of like tissue thin notebooks, like just for kind of like the crummiest paper you could imagine. And just scribbling in like a ballpoint pen or crayon, like these early doodles of what these characters are good, were going to look like. And I and I, I knew that, um, you know, I knew little things out the gate that like uh, Jack Fortune was going to be, uh, you know, like I said, a guy in a white suit would have a really long tie. I knew instantly that there was going to be a dude made of golden metal who would wear a suit. And I think originally he was a bit more mechanical, but that very quickly coalesced into Mr. Ockroyd. It's funny, like, again, these ideas are just like flashbulb, like they have to be this way. I also knew there'd be a giant and he'd be on fire. Only, I don't think Nuriel originally had a lion face. I think he was just a big dude on fire. And I remember like at the time I was working in a, a coffee shop and I started to like weave together this mythology of how the afterlife the afterlife would work I, I knew that we were going to have this tiered afterlife this kind of like multi-level afterlife and I had some vague ideas for how that would work and whether you'd progress up or progress down but I have to say like the Empyrean like the thing that became the Empyrean that structure of the afterlife that arrived really kind of fully formed and quite early I remember doing research around like I think Judaic mythology and, and the various names of some of the heavens in like um, angelology and Gnosticism and stuff like that. But like a lot of that like arrived like I was like, oh, my God, like this is kind of writing itself. And I. Yeah, and I just I loved it. I remember like all this, this, the freedom of it, of knowing that like you're at this most pure and creative stage where all you have to do is come up with ideas. You know, you don't have to worry about the logistics of it like how am I going to print this how am I going to find an artist to, to draw it because at that point like the actual producing a comic was so so far away from my reality that like it was almost it was almost no point worrying about it because it's like well making a comic is really hard so you might as well just enjoy the ideas stage and so for like 
that year in Canada, I really kind of just developed the plot of After I Think. I was also I also had another comic I was kind of developing around that time called um, Bioaks, and I did a lot of work on that one. And I was really kind of proud of that one as well. And again, maybe one day I'll return to it. But again, a lot of ideas. Mm. Uh, not a lot of uh, kind of ways for making them into physical comics at that point in my life. And I remember traveling across Canada, you know, just again, doing kind of just basic jobs, selling coffee, working in bookshops, nothing glamorous. I went to um, a Calgary, the Calgary Comics Convention or the Calgary Fan Expo or whatever it was called in like something like February 2008 or April 2008 or something. And um I met Mark Wade, who was really, really cool guy, very helpful. And I met Greg Rucker, who was just the nicest guy in the world. And I think I probably kind of stood out because I was clearly just this very, very lost Brit, like very far from home. And they gave me so much time and advice. They really didn't have to. They were under no obligation to do it. And I'm, I'm so eternally grateful that they were so so flipping nice about it. They gave me a lot of advice. And I also remember going to the Toronto Fan Expo, which I think was something like August 2008 or something like that. It was it was one of the last things I did before kind of returning home. And I went with my friend at Sim, who had come out to see me. And that was incredible because that's when I started discovering like indie creators, which is kind of that was a revelation because in all this time kind of going across Canada, I was still, and to be fair, it's an idea I stuck with for a long time. I was still very much like, you make comics by, well, you make comics by getting published. I was like, that's the only way, the only way to make a comic, surely. And I remember meeting, well, I discovered uh, a small, a smaller publisher called Red Five Comics, who are still going to this day, and I think they were based out of Calgary. But they had published a comic called Atomic Robo, and I think there were six issues out at the time. By oh, I'm going to I'm going to get this wrong, but Brian Brian Clevenger and Scott Wegener, Wegener, I think I, I I do I do apologise, guys. I've very much mispronounced that. But at the time, they'd just been published by Red Five, and they did this really, really fun, funny, inventive, offbeat comic about a robot built by uh, Tesla, who was immortal because he was a robot, and he ended up becoming like an adventurer and running a company. And it was very, very, very funny. And it kind of blew my mind because it had this real kind of like indie vibe, even though it had been published. Like, you know, Red Five Comics were not not an especially large publisher by any means, but I was like, oh my God, like, I could do this. You know, this is kind of like, this kind of has the vibe I'm trying to go go for with After I Think. And it's a non-superhero comic that is like, you know, smart and clever and quirky. And it was everything I kind of wanted to make. And I was so impressed by it. And I also remember meeting um, uh, an incredible uh, couple of independent creators, a married couple called Comfort Love and Adam Withers, who I'm still friends with to this day. And they, they were at the Toronto Fan Expo and they blew my mind as well because they had, um, they had, uh, 
they were self-publishing uh, an indie comic, uh, an indie superhero comic called The Uniques. And, you know, they were getting it printed to such a high level of quality. It looked like a quote-unquote real graphic novel. Like, it was, it was amazing. And, again, they were very, very kind people. They gave me so much advice. They gave me, really, really, really gave me the time of day. Listen to my probably, frankly, idiotic ideas. And um, I remember going back to my hostel where I was staying in Toronto at the time. And I think, very presumptuous of me, I wrote a story idea, like a short standalone story idea featuring one of their characters. And I sent it to them, which again, in hindsight, is, is a is a work of astonishing audacity. I'm, I'm glad they didn't uh, kind of, they weren't annoyed with me for doing it. But I was like, I just have this cool idea for these character, this character, and I don't know what you think, and I sent it to them. And they were so kind because they were like, you know what? This isn't like a perfect fit for our mythology and the rules of our universe, which of course you're not privy to. But like, we kind of like it. You know, it'd be like, you've, you know, it's very good work, John. They gave me like a pat on the back and I was like, oh, that's very, that's very kind of you. I remember like, when I returned to the UK, and I got my kind of first kind of proper job. It wasn't especially glamorous. I was working as a school science technician, but you know, hey, putting that putting that degree to work. And um, Comfort and Love very kindly, uh, you know, sorry, Comfort and Adam very kindly remembered me. And they were like, hey, we're putting together an anthology of short stories based in our universe. Um, did you want to, you know, did you want to, did, did, did you want to be part of it? Like, did you want to write a story? And I did, like I leapt, I leapt at the chunks and I wrote um, my first published comic, if you will, or my first quote unquote published comic. Um, again, like self, you know, independently published, not not by kind of Marvel or DC, but it was, it was incredible. And I, I just felt this amazing rush. It was drawn by an incredible artist named Del Borovic, who, if there's any after I think scholars out there will probably, <laughs> will probably remember. And I, I just loved it. And, and then I, I, they, they, they were going to do like eight stories and they were all going to be different creative teams. But I remember that for whatever reason, I think the last writer they had on board had to pull out. So I ended up writing a second story for them. And I, I, I loved it. It was such a great experience. And in hindsight, I didn't really know like what on earth I was, I was doing. I think they were probably quite wordy as scripts go, probably a bit too dialogue heavy, which again, if anyone out there has read my comics, you probably know that like, God, I I love words. Like I, I, I've gotten better at it. Like I used to pack so many words in. I'm a much, much better at streamlining it now. And, um, but it was, it was an incredible opportunity and I really loved it. And, and the cool thing was, is that I got to, through the project, got to know like a bunch of um, American creators who kind of independent creators who worked on this book and I was able to make connections with them and a lot of them you know kind of made the transition to After I Think to After I Think Volume 1. I'd um I'd spent those kind of you know I was like came back from Canada in 2008 and I was like this is it this is my moment I'm totally gonna you know seize the day and make a comic right now and it took me three years. <laughs> I, I I did not move especially quickly but I, I tried to, you know, fix the character designs for these characters. I wasn't like an especially brilliant artist, but, 
you know, I wanted to really lock down these character designs so I could say that I'd come up with them and I could pass them on to an artist. Um, I was starting to earn a bit of money from my day job. It wasn't an especially highly paid job, but bearing in mind, like, I'd only ever sold coffee or worked in bookshops. And so because I had a bit of, started to have a bit of cash to hand, I could start paying artists for their time. And I mean, it's, 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 it's funny in hindsight, like how obvious that seems, but yeah, like progress really started. I really started to move forward with the comic the moment I could pay talented people to work on it. Um, I was still using the digital webbing forums at the time to find artists, you know, they were, I didn't really have any connections in the UK. I didn't really know people on the UK comics convention scene. And I, you know, I, I, I connected with people online. That's how I found artists. I, I remember connecting with Ash Jackson, who became one of the kind of, you know, big, big artists and the, the main people responsible for getting Afterlife Inc. off the ground visually. And, and then, and then these artists I connected with through, through Comfort, Comfort and Adam's comics. So that really became uh, the basis of volume one of Afterlife Inc. And yeah, and you know, before I knew it, I started telling some short stories and I never set out to be an indie publisher, but before I knew it, there I was like in the thick of it. Hey folks, um, it's John from the future here, jumping back in to say that this actually turned into one of the longest podcast recording sessions I have ever done in my life. And that is saying something because as you've probably guessed, I love to talk. So I have decided to split this episode into, into two, basically. So uh, you are, uh, yeah, so you are halfway through the journey. Don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll break them up and release them uh, in, in good order so you can catch them both. But uh, I think given how long it's taken me to talk about the history of Afghal, I think before I even made the first flipping story, um, Dying to Tell is very much going to have to be its own volume. So yes. Uh, I will I will make a cut here and we will turn that into the next episode, which hopefully you'll be able to listen to um, pretty quickly. So yeah, um, on that note, I will say my very, very, very smart and clever and pre-prepared ending, which is you've been listening to the Afterlife Inc. podcast, a deep dive into a comic and a company you can believe in. I've been your host, John, the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. The Afterlife Inc. podcast is made possible by your support on patreon.com forward slash afterlife inc thanks for listening folks and remember it might not be paradise but you can see it from here